0: On August 9, 2020, a 5.1 magnitude earthquake hit the small town of Sparta, North Carolina in Allegheny County. This was the strongest earthquake recorded in the state in 104 years and the second strongest in the recorded history of the state. Although there were luckily no fatalities, Sparta experienced heavy damage and at a time when COVID-19 and other disasters had already hit the town hard. While visiting Sparta, Governor Roy Cooper made this statement. We've dealt with a hurricane, a violent tornado, and now an earthquake all in the middle of a pandemic. North Carolinians are resilient. This is certainly a true statement. North Carolinians have shown resiliency in the face of natural disasters since the inception of the state, and there are a ton of stories in the archives that showcase this fact. Resiliency is a capacity to withstand or to recover quickly from difficulties, or to put it simply, fortitude. Whether it's individuals risking their lives for others, agencies funneling resources into rescue operations, or communities coming together to rebuild, North Carolinians are absolutely resilient. Welcome to Connecting the Docs, a podcast sharing true stories from the old North state using materials found in the state archives of North Carolina taking us through these stories and more. Here's your host, John Horan.
1: Hello everyone, welcome to a new season of Connecting the Docks, the podcast for the State Archives of North Carolina. I'm your host, John Horan. This season we will embark on the year of the trail, uncover hidden narratives, and meet our most famous marsupial, slowpoke, the possum. But for today, we are excited to start Season 4 with a series about natural disaster preparedness in North Carolina. This series will be a three-parter, with the first episode focusing on the most common natural disaster faced by North Carolinians, hurricanes. And accompanying me through the swells and storms are Katie Crickmore. Hi. Josh Hager. Howdy. And you just heard the voice of Shauna Carr.
2: According to the National Hurricane Center, North Carolina is number four on the list of states most affected by hurricanes. And throughout the recorded history of the state, hurricanes have been responsible for nearly 1,000 total fatalities and over $11 billion in damages.
3: I've lived through a couple here. I mean, I'm a lifelong North Carolinian. I lived through Fran and Floyd growing up in Fayetteville. Uh, Fran, we lost power for nine days, I think uh we had to live with with some of the other family for a while i remember after the storm of course all the food is spoiled because all the power's out and we drove around fayetteville and the only place that had power was Schlotsky's deli on skybow road (laughs) and we ended up there and the line was the longest i've ever waited for a mediocre meatball sub but it was the best food i'd had that year in 1996. um so that that was money well spent on a generator (laughs)
1: yeah that's i mean that's wild as as somebody who's not from here i don't really know what a hurricane what that feels like so i'm just really fascinated to hear these stories
2: hurricanes Uh, are a definite like uh culture thing i think in north carolina we have hurricane parties sometimes we we
1: uh i don't know what does that mean
2: You've never been to a hurricane party? <laughs>
1: no, I've never been to a hurricane.
0: I've never <laughs> no, even heard of a hurricane party.
2: <laughs> I, it's not like a straight, a, a legit thing. But, you know, you could find the hurricane cakes at Food Lion.
3: There's no accident that we named our team after hurricanes. Yep. It's part of our culture. And, you know, with the with things we're going to discuss next week, the other kinds of weather, people leave in North Carolina. I get scared. Hurricanes, there's always somebody on the news that is putting their boards up on the on the houses at the coast and saying, "I'm not leaving." They're spray painting "Go away, storm" <laughs> on their window. A lot, every of, a lot time. of people
2: measure time uh, before before a hurricane and after a hurricane. Exactly, in North Carolina. Uh, sure. Yeah, exactly. Like, oh, this was sure. before Matthew. Remember? You I mean, know.
3: And, and I'm being flippant about it, but honestly, it shows the resiliency uh, mm-hmm. of the people in North Carolina because we deal with this so much that. It really is about resiliency, as we heard from Shauna earlier. So um, what might be the worst hurricane in terms of destructiveness, Katie?
2: Oh, yeah. Uh, North Carolina's faced its fair share of bad ones. And if you look at any list of the strongest and most destructive hurricanes to ever hit North Carolina, you're sure to find Hurricane Hazel at the top of the list. On October fifth, nineteen 1954, the U.S. Weather Bureau made note of a storm system forming in the Caribbean. On October 9th, the system had officially intensified into a major hurricane, and on October 12th, it made landfall for the first time in Haiti. Hazel was, at that point, classified as a Category 3 hurricane, and it devastated the area, causing hundreds of deaths from flooding. The hurricane then plowed through the Bahamas, and surprisingly, instead of becoming weaker as it traveled north, like hurricanes usually do, Hazel got stronger. And then on the morning of October 15th, Hazel, now a Category 4 hurricane, hit North Carolina. Brunswick County and the town of Southport were particularly devastated, which brings us to the first story of resiliency we'll be discussing today, that of Jesse Stevens Taylor.
1: So, who, who's Jesse Stevens Taylor?
2: Jesse Stevens Taylor was a 76 year old volunteer weather observer and a storm warning display woman in Southport, North Carolina. Her duties included taking daily recordings of the weather and manning the storm warning center in the town. The storm warning flag system was created in 1898 as an attempt to quickly alert ships and coastal residents in the event of a major storm or hurricane, and Southport was one of the 142 weather stations along the Atlantic and Gulf Coast that used the system. The town at that time was the shrimping capital of North Carolina, and mariners relied on the signals to know if conditions were dangerous off the coast. Taylor had been volunteering as a weather watcher for about 54 years at this point, longer than any other woman in that role. On October 14th, the U.S. Weather Bureau issued a warning to North Carolina coastal communities that Hazel was approaching but would probably remain far off the coast. However, the hurricane made a last-minute swing inland and was headed straight for the unsuspecting town of Southport. Heavy wind and rain began to pound the coast about midday on October 14th, which Taylor recorded. And later that evening, long after the sun had set, she received word from Wilmington to put out an emergency hurricane warning. Taylor immediately hoisted the hurricane pennant a red square with a black square in the middle, and that was no small feat for a 76-year-old in that rough weather, and put on the three hurricane spotlights. She also spent the rest of the night telephoning warnings about the storm to people up and down the coast. Hurricane Hazel caused extensive damage to North Carolina, particularly Brunswick County, with a total monetary amount estimated to be $163 million. 19 North Carolinians were killed, and there were thousands of injuries recorded. Because of her diligence to her position and quick actions, Taylor is credited with saving dozens, if not hundreds, of lives in Southport and along the North Carolina Barrier Islands. She earned the Weather Bureau's Silver Medal for Meritorious Service Award for her actions that day and a letter of commendation from President Eisenhower. After Hazel, the Southport community came together to help rebuild, particularly their shrimping business. The whole town went out to assist with shrimping that season and brought in the largest haul of shrimp in the history of the village. When Jessie Stevens Taylor turned 80 in 1959, she was celebrated for her 60 years of service and she officially became the oldest active weather observer in the U.S. Two years later, she passed away, but she is remembered fondly by the Southport community and even has a memorial dedicated to her by the Southport Tower. Our next story of resiliency is also about an individual showing heroism and toughness in the face of danger and also took place on the Outer Banks. It's about a professional life-saving serviceman was working on Hatteras Island at the turn of the century. Hurricanes and tropical storms were not named until 1953, so prior to this they were tracked sequentially within their season, like the third hurricane of the 1950 season. However, if the hurricane was destructive or memorable enough, it received a unique nickname outside of that system. When the first major hurricane formed during the 1899 season, it hit Puerto Rico first on August 8th, during the names day of St. Syriacus, and so it is often referred to as the San Syriaco hurricane. The hurricane caused over 3,000 deaths and widespread destruction on the island before moving west. On August 18th, the storm made landfall on the outer banks, the same day Rasmus Midget was on duty at the Gull Shoals lifesaving station. Midget was a U.S. life saving service surfman who had come from a long line of North Carolina life saving surfmen. The U.S. Lifesaving Service had originated in the 1840s as a volunteer organization, but eventually it became the U.S. Coast Guard. Since the 1790s, members of Midget's family had been serving in the US LSS and several had been awarded medals for their work which earned them the nickname the Mighty Midgets. Rasmus was named for St. Elmo or St. Erasmus, the patron state of sailors, and had been stationed at the Hatteras Gold life-saving station since the 1880s. In the early hours of August 18th, as the San Seriaco hurricane was barreling towards the island, Midget went out on a routine patrol of the beach. Hatter's Island had already been feeling the effects of the approaching storm all day on the 17th, with winds so strong they couldn't be recorded because the recording equipment blew away. Additionally, the growing storm surge had submerged virtually the whole island in water. In some places, the water rose over four feet. Still, at 3 a.m. on August 18th, Rasmus began his patrol and soon started to notice debris floating in the water. He then heard cries for help coming from the darkness off the coast, and using only the light of his lantern, managed to make out the remains of a ship that had been grounded just off the beach. The ship was the Priscilla, which had been bound for Brazil when it was caught by the San Seriaco hurricane and destroyed. The captain's wife and son, who were traveling with him, and two members of the crew had unfortunately been swept away by the violent waves, but ten men remained clinging to the grounded aft section. Rasmus was three miles away from the Gulf Shoals station at this point, and it was 4.30 a.m., so he feared that if he left the men to go get help, it would be too late. So he decided to try and rescue them himself. Their surf was still violent, but Midget was able to wade closer to the shipwreck and yell instructions to the men on how to jump off the ship and come to shore at his signal. Seven of them were able to make it to the beach in this way, but the remaining three were too exhausted for the attempt. So Midget swam to the wreck three times and carried each of them to safety, all while the San Siriaco hurricane raged on. One of the men he saved was the captain of the vessel, Benjamin Springsteen. Rasmus was awarded the gold life-saving medal from the Secretary of Treasurer on August 18th for his actions that day. Though 20 North Carolinians lost their lives during the San Siriaco hurricane, that number would have been 30 if not for Rasmus Midget.
3: Those two stories are really amazing examples oh yeah of individuals overcoming immense forces of nature yeah. <laughs> i mean they're both amazing resiliency um what records would people look at if they want to learn more about either one of these folks
2: so there are tons of stories about jesse stevens taylor and the hazel hurricane that can be found in the digital.ncdcr.gov website a lot of them are publications uh, from like our state magazine and they're hosted by the state library but we also have some records in our collection. We have the um, Governor Hodges general correspondence files that talk about the damage from Hazel. Uh, we have Carolina Power and Light Photograph Collection, and that also has photographs of the damage. So there's a, there's a lot of stuff that you could be for that one. And then for Rasmus Midget, his story was way cool, and we have some photos of him in our collection, especially this one that I saw first. It's him sitting on the remains of the wreck of the Priscilla that was taken later... Uh, that week,
1: no, That's nuts. So he revisited.
2: He did. Yeah. He got so famous for it. that so He that had a photo op that's at the site. <laughs> yeah,
1: <that's
3: amazing. laughs> wow. And I mean, the mighty midgets are, st- are still survive into the popular culture of the Outer Banks.
2: That's right. We actually also have a collection stored at the Outer Banks History Center of uh, Chelsea Midget Papers. Uh, so she's she was still residing on the island. A lot of her records talk about Rasmus Midget and the rest of the midgets on the uh, on Hatteras as well.
1: Nice. Fantastic.
3: Well, you don't want to put the impression out there that it's just the Outer Banks that gets hit with these storms, but these two particular stories just so happen to be both the Outer Banks. But uh, the, it's amazing, I think, the, the courage, as you said at the beginning, with fortitude. I mean, These two North Carolinians are the epitome of fortitude, in a way.
2: That's right. These kind of two heroes are very clear examples of resiliency in the face of something like this, this natural disaster.
1: So we've heard two stories of individuals uh, showing resiliency in the face of a hurricane. But we're going to take a quick break, and after that, we're going to shift to instances of communities persisting through that kind of destruction.
0: Got a hankering for history and you want to know more? The State Archives in North Carolina has three regional facilities to better serve you and all your history needs. Check in and check us out at the Outer Banks History Center in Manny the State Archives in Raleigh, or the Western Regional Archives in Asheville. Thank you for your support. And now, back to the show.
1: Welcome back. Uh, so we, before the break, we heard two stories of individuals showing resiliency in the face of a hurricane. Um, now we're going to talk about communities and how they persist through that kind of destruction.
2: In August of 1775, New Bern was a flurry of activity. The Revolutionary War had officially begun four months earlier, and the capital was as busy as the rest of the state preparing for the upcoming conflict. New Bern had hosted the Second Provincial Congress in April, Governor Martin had recently fled Tryon Palace, and the upcoming trade ban meant that every East Coast port was scrambling to get final shipments in and out before September. In the midst of all this action, a hurricane was brewing that would play a major role in the war. This hurricane was strong, and managed to hit or affect virtually every Revolutionary War capital along the East Coast. During the intense weather, two British ships were grounded off the coast of Virginia, after which patriots managed to capture one, the HMS Liberty. This was one of the first confrontations in the early months of the war. The hurricane devastated the shipping industry, as warehouses full of goods and foods were destroyed, which caused the Continental Congress to extend the date for the trade ban, and offer relief for merchants and farmers who had experienced losses. Because of the role it played at the onset of the Revolutionary War, this hurricane is commonly called the Independence Hurricane. And while many states suffered losses up and down the coast, North Carolina, unfortunately, took the brunt of the devastation. After about a week of heavy rain and wind, the storm hit the Outer Banks first, probably on August 27th. The barrier islands were essentially destroyed as the storm moved inland and slammed the coast, causing intense flooding and destruction. New Bern was one of the cities that was affected, although it was luckily not in the direct path of the hurricane. By the time the Independence Hurricane moved upwards into Virginia, whole buildings had been blown away, multiple ships had been wrecked, and over 200 people had been killed. A portion of a letter someone had written in New Bern was published in the Virginia Gazette that read, We had a violent hurricane the second instant, which had done a vast deal of damage here, near 150 lives being lost at the bar. In that same extract, though, the letter writer continued, Our convention will rise next week. They have agreed to raise 1,000 men to be stationed as follows, 200 at Newburn, 200 at Eatonton, 200 at Salisbury, and 400 at Cape Fear. The hurricane lingered in North Carolina until September 2nd, and only a week had passed by the time this letter was written on September 9th. But the patriots could not be distracted from their war preparations for too long. They simply couldn't afford to. And so the townspeople of Newburn cleaned up and moved on all while hoping that the hurricane that struck them on the eve of their independence wasn't an omen. The last tale of resiliency we'll discuss today is another town that was hit by a major hurricane and was forced to bounce back quickly, the town of Princeville. Princeville was established in 1885 by Freedmen in Edgecombe County, making it the first town founded by African Americans in the state and one of the first in the country. It began as a temporary settlement along the Tar River for formerly enslaved persons coming from surrounding counties, and it was referred to as Freedom Hill. The area was considered undesirable by the white landowners since it was swampy and so close to the river. In the 1870s, residents began actually acquiring the lots there, and one of the buyers was Turner Prince, who would become the namesake of the town when it was incorporated. Throughout the years, the small town has had more than its fair share of trouble. During the Jim Crow era, white business owners attempted to seize control of the town. More than half of the town's inhabitants left after World War I as part of the Great Migration, And in 1997, the North Carolina Local Government Commission was forced to assume control over the town's finances. During all of this, Princeville continually faced flooding from its low elevation and proximity to the Tar River, the worst of which happened in 1999 during Hurricane Floyd. By September of 1999, the hurricane season had already proved particularly brutal for the East Coast. North Carolina was dealing with the damages caused by Hurricane Dennis, which had made landfall on the Outer Banks on September 4th, and another hurricane was following directly on its heels. Hurricane Floyd hit the state on September 16th and brought torrential rainfall to the already waterlogged coast in Piedmont. Overnight, nearly every river basin in eastern North Carolina began to overflow and flood neighborhoods. By all accounts, the flooding caused by the Tar River was the worst, exceeding 500 year flood levels in some areas. And Princeville didn't stand a chance. Princeville was essentially underwater as the river rose to the height of rooftops. Residents of the town and surrounding areas were largely unprepared for this level of flooding and many had to be rescued from their homes. 51 people died. All in all, Princeville was covered in about 20 feet of water for 10 days. The town was destroyed and the residents who were largely low-income families were homeless. There was a push at first to completely dissolve the town, since it was clear the area would always be at risk for flooding. FEMA even offered to buy out all the residents so they could start over elsewhere. But the members of the town didn't want to relocate. The mayor vowed that they would rebuild and stay strong as a community, and that's what they did. Now Princeville is still facing problems. Hurricane Matthew hit the town just as hard in 2016, forcing them to rebuild again, and the town has continued to shrink in the face of these sort of natural disasters. But many residents are still holding strong, and in 2020, the Army Corps of Engineers announced a $39.6 million project was underway for a levy to protect the area from future storms. Princeville has persevered through the ages and continues to stand on Freedom Hill, right where it was founded.
3: I find it fascinating that we have the Independence Hurricane at the beginning of freedom, as you might say, mm. for the country. And then we have this other Hurricane Floyd affecting Freedom Hill. It's one of those coincidences of history at the back, you know, the very beginning of the state and very recently. Yeah, turn in of the, the century. The exactly. <laughs> but same kind of spirit. And for the the communities in, in both, the resiliency is, is evident.
2: Right.
1: Yeah, I mean, you can hear the rallying in both. I mean, you're talking about that article where where they said, you know, we, we just got hit by this, and in the same article they're saying, well, we're going to still rally people and, and get this. Here's what's going on. Here's what right. we need to do. That's business. right. Yeah. It's, and, and we're going to get these people. I'd be interested, you know, this is might be something we can never find out, but I'd be interested to see how many of those, you know, 200 in Edenton, 200 in Newber, actually came, but <laughs> uh, I would be, that, that's that—that's fascinating. And then in the in the uh, Princeville story, you know, they came back and rebuilt, and then rebuilt yep. again, and they will We'll continue again, to yeah, rebuild. Again and and again. I think that's terrific.
3: And I think with the earlier query, one of the places people could look for that is in our troop returns, in our digital collections. A lot of the early troop returns are muster rolls, from the 1770s, and there's a decent chance that some of these men being called up for the militia might be reflected in some of those muster rolls in digital collections. So I don't know if we'll yeah, be able to definitively correlate them to this call, but certainly we could see some of the men who did answer the call at right around this time period.
1: Yeah, so we could get close and, and kind of see see some connections anyway. I think that's terrific. Yeah, we, precisely. We can connect those docs that way. And, and more to that point, um, what other sources did you consult for this?
2: For the Independence Hurricane, yeah, there's a lot of secondary sources that are pretty great that I found uh, online. Uh, there's lots of books that have been written about it. From our records, we have a copy of the Virginia Gazette that I quoted out of, the October article. Um, we also have some British records letters that discuss the hurricane. One of them even said, uh, it was William de Bram to the Earl of Dartmouth said, oh, a hurricane came through. I think it was from the, the meteorite we s- or the, the comet we saw the other <laughs> night. That one was an interesting one to read. It
1: brings a new spin on meteorology.
2: Right. <laughs> um, Hence
1: the origins of the term.
2: Yeah. <laughs> For Floyd, we have a lot more records here. For Governor Hunt, we have his emergency management files from 1999 that discuss all of the all the issues people were facing with the damage. We have temporary housing section information. We have photographs that depict the damage from the storm. Uh, one of them particularly is specific about Princeville, water damage in Princeville uh, dated October 1999 in our collection. So there's a, there's a lot for that one mm-hmm. as well.
3: And in the uh, Hurricane Floyd, I'll plug my section in government records, uh, th- we our agency at that point was active enough that I I know we provided um, advice to the authorities in Princeville for their records um, but we'll hear more about what our agency does to help towns and counties and hurricanes in the third episode of this series just a little plug but mm-hmm. it's recent enough that that was involved in this case definitely not in the independence hurricane
2: yeah no <laughs>
1: Yeah, well, and on that note, with that plug for another episode um, in this series, today we heard four stories of resiliency from North Carolina residents when facing major hurricanes, but hurricanes are not the only natural disaster this state has had to deal with. Join us next episode when we discuss four stories of tornadoes, blizzards, landslides, and wildfires, and personally... I'm looking forward to hearing about how North Carolinians cope with all of these weather events. But I'm particularly interested, as the resident northerner, to hearing about how we've coped with blizzards. I yeah. think that's going to be mm-hmm. great. Mm-hmm. You
2: might be surprised. We've yeah, had some nor'easters you, you, yeah, here. Yeah, you
1: might. I, I'm looking forward to being surprised. <laughs> Anyway, thank you all for joining me today. And thank you for listening to episode one of season four of Connecting the Docks. Stay tuned for more stories from the State Archives of North Carolina. And I'd like to give special thanks to my guests, Katie and Josh. Thank you for having us.
2: Yep,
0: thanks.
1: And I'd like to thank the producers, Aaron Fult, Brooke Chuka, Shauna Carr, podcast interns, Annabeth Poe. Sabrina Barrett. And I don't want to forget to thank former intern Carly Keller for all of her research efforts. And of course, to the voice you hear at the beginning and end of each episode, Judy Allen Dotson. I'm John Horan.
0: We hope you enjoyed this episode of season four of Connecting the Docs. Don't forget to like, rate, and subscribe to the show on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever you get your podcasts so you'll never miss an episode. If you like this show, you might want to check out our blog, History for All the People.